0: Genesis chapter, we'll look at the very end of 39 and 40, so whether we uh, acknowledge it or not, there's there's something common to every single person that's here today, and that is that we all go through what we could call dungeon experiences. We all go through times where it seems like we have been forgotten by God, we sense that we've been abandoned, we feel life is broken, we are hurt. Perhaps we've been mistreated, but unfair treatment, this sense of abandonment, this can come from a variety of different places. Uh, first, you know, it could be like just undeserved treatment from family. Maybe you had a parent that just simply mistreated you, or maybe you as a kid, maybe you, uh, maybe you mistreated your parents. Um, maybe you experienced this. Everybody does at some point in their life. Untrue accusations. People say things about you or kind of say it in such a way that puts you in an unfavorable light. And you've got to live with that. And something that surprises you is that they are able to convince other people that this is right. And and these are your friends. And you're like, what's up with that? that? How does that work out? Why am I going through this? And why do I face this? Perhaps one of the most significant and troubling times where we feel like we've been abandoned is when maybe a spouse has left us. They are the ones that said, yep, I do. And they didn't. And they hurt us tremendously. Maybe it was a business partner. And you worked together. In fact, you really carried your lion's share of the load. And then they just kind of left you high and dry. And you're like, why? Why am I going through this difficulty? Maybe you've maybe you lost your job. Maybe you, maybe you loaned money to someone that you really trusted. And they just took it. They blew it. And they never acknowledge that whole incident ever again. In fact, they've removed themselves from you. And there's a variety of different ways that we can go through experiences that we could call these dungeon experiences, but they are hard and they are heavy. Our souls are weighted down. And we're just asking questions. I know that I've gone through very difficult times. I've gone, God, why? How in the world is this supposed to work for my good? And I would imagine that I'm not alone. I, we all have, haven't we? God, how are you going to work in a situation like this? And when we come to this very deep question of life, for why we face these difficult trials and problems, there's something that we need to remember. It's found in Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. Isaiah pens these words and he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God speaking. Nor are my ways, your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's difficult for us to, to come to terms with this, but do you hear what he says? My, God is saying, my ways are not your ways. My, my thoughts are so much grander, they simply cannot be your thoughts, for we're merely creatures. And, and we have to come to the fact that God works in ways that are mysterious, um, perplexing, they are profound, deep, and, and sometimes we could just even say they are they're surprising. If anybody um, knew about mistreatment, it would be the man that we've been studying here for the last few weeks as we've been going through the book of Genesis, looking at the life of Joseph. I mean, we, we kind of operate on this principle that you do good, you do the right thing, that uh, blessings are going to come your way. And, of course, if you do wrong, you do something that's a violation of what's right, you offend God, you do something that's troubling, that you're going to get some consequences, right? But God works in mysterious ways, and there must be a great degree of mystery in our faith. We need to let God be God and realize that he works in ways that are just beyond our comprehension. Certainly, Joseph had to be working through these issues. I mean, think about the mistreatment in his life. Dad kind of set him up for failure by giving him that coat, right? Remember, set him apart, dressed him up like a prince, said you don't have to do any work, and his brothers hated him. They hated his dream, they hated that coat, they hated the father's favoritism, and when they had the opportunity, what did they do? Well, they, they were going to kill him, but then they decided to throw him in a pit, when they figured out what to do, and then they decided, let's let's not kill him. No, let's let's make some money off the guy. And so they did, 20 shekels of silver, sold their brother into slavery. Joseph not only had been abandoned and hurt by his family, but then he's hauled off to Egypt. And he's sold as a slave. I mean, think of it. Could you imagine your life going from one day of freedom and great dreams in front of you to the next you're a slave and being hauled off and you're chained up and you're sold on a block and he's bought off by this guy named Potiphar who happens to be the captain of the bodyguard for Pharaoh. And things all go well and and God seems to bless this man, but then uh, Potiphar's wife takes an interest in him. And she, day after day, comes after him and propositions him. And she is just raw in her sexual advances. And he continually denies her. And one day she grabs his coat. He flees and runs. And he's accused of of raping this, or attempting to rape this woman. And he's thrown into prison. And I'm sure he had to wonder, what in the world? God, how in the world are you working this out? I know the promises that you gave to my grandfather and great-grandfather. I, I believe them, but I, I simply don't see how they're working out because my life seems to be a miserable failure as I'm rotting here in prison. And you ask, well, how old is Joseph about this time? Well, he's, he's probably about 28 years old. But a better question is, where's God in this time? Where is God when life is broken and nothing makes sense and we are experiencing unfair Difficult treatment. You want to know where he is? Look at Genesis 39, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. Did you see that? But the Lord was with with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that wherever was done there, he was responsible for it. And the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because, did you see this? Because the Lord Yahweh was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Friends, when we ask this question, God, where are you? The Lord is with us. And in fact, chapter 39 is the signature chapter in the life of Joseph. Four different times it is stated that Yahweh, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, is with him. He is right there with him, comforting him. In fact, it says here in verse 21 that he extended kindness loving chesed, loyal love to him. He encouraged his heart. He gave him strength. He gave him renewal and perspective. And the secret of Joseph's life is that he kept looking to God and not to the difficulty and the depravity of his circumstances. That is the difference. That is why he is different under trial than how we would expect. Because the Lord is a strength and everything is fixed and focused on him. And I would imagine there were times where he's wondering, is my life on hold? But the difference is that he went past that and didn't just let himself get admired in this downward spiral that took him to the pits of despair. But he set his sights and his focus back upon God who is always with him even in the greatest difficulties of his life. You know, when we go through these hardships, friends, and they're never easy, what God does is he's stripping away the crutches that we've been holding on to and he is teaching us to walk by faith And not by sight. And you know, chances are a lot of you are going through this kind of circumstance right now. Now is not the time to give up. Now is the time to cling to God who is there. The Lord is with you. Now, it just so happened that uh, Joseph got a few visitors that came and visited him at prison, only they weren't just stopping by to check on his health. They, too, were incarcerated. Genesis chapter 40, verse 1. Then it came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And so he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. Okay, so now we have a a situation here. Now, let me just explain these positions. These are royal positions. These are key men in the empire. The cupbearer, the cupbearer was an an extremely important situation. The cupbearer, he was kind of oversaw all the food that was fed to Pharaoh. And his job was, as the cupbearer, he would actually taste the food, drink the wine or drink or whatever Pharaoh was drinking that day, and he would drink it first. And the idea is that if there was poison in there and the assassination of the empire leader, Pharaoh, was always a very real threat, and so the cupbearer, he drank it first. And so, you know, like if there was some sort of poison, strychnine, whatever, you know, he falls and his final breath, long live Pharaoh as he does, you know. And this wasn't a position that he, like, was, you know, went and campaigned for. He was appointed to this. I mean, can you imagine a campaign for the cupbearer? Like, you know, I'm a good man to die drinking poison, so please vote for me, and you know, I'd like to do this. And my wife thinks this is a good idea. I don't, it wasn't anything like that. This was in a position that was appointed, but not only did he taste the food, a cupbearer was one of, maybe even the top advisor to Pharaoh. And there are even cases, as we look at Egyptian history, where the cupbearer actually served as a judge, and he made rulings. This is an extremely important position that this man has. But he, the cupbearer is hauled into jail. But also notice who else is the baker. And this likely exactly is the chief baker, the man who is overseeing all of the production of food. These two men had to find people they could trust. They had to be themselves incorruptible because there was a great degree of trust that was entrusted to them. They couldn't have anybody that wanted to kill Pharaoh or to cause some sort of ill will to his family involved in, the, in this, at this level. And so what they did is they oversaw not only the food and its production, they oversaw the people that they employed in these purposes. Something drastic must have happened. I think that we could safely say it was something to do with the food. Now, I don't think it was like, you know, they just, the baker had a bad time and the biscuits didn't rise that day or there were too many jalapenos and the chili or something like that or, or Pharaoh said, you know, I want a hot breakfast. They thought, <laughs> you know, I was really demanding so they set his cornflakes on fire and they served that to him and he's like, this makes me really mad and you're going to prison. I don't think it was anything like that. There probably was a real threat and going to prison, jail, this wasn't a way of punishment so much as it was a time to figure things out and then judgment is going to be executed, whether you were going to be absolved of the wrongdoing or you were going to be punished for it. And so these two men are find themselves in prison. And verse 4, the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them and he took care of them and they were in confinement for some time. And then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt who were... Con- find in jail, both had a dream in the same night and each man with his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. And so what takes place is because because Joseph is focused on the Lord. And even though he's in terrible circumstances, he has such a heart for God and he knows that I can trust him even when it doesn't make sense. He's, he's actually given the care of these men. It just it just goes to show, like, just when he was a slave, he served God faithfully and God allowed him to prosper. Even in prison, he is doing the exact same thing. And so he's taking care of these two men, and they have a dream. Now, they, this, these were not ordinary dreams, okay? And they had obviously discussed them. And dreams were actually real big in Egypt, okay? The whole idea of oniromancy, which is the practice of interpreting dreams was something big in Egypt. They, they believed that their gods would speak to them through dreams, and so they really would want to understand these dreams. Well, this particular dream that each one of these have, this, this demanded some sort of interpretation. They were very dejected. Verse 6, and so verse 7, he asked them, he says, he asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? And they said to him, well, we've had a dream. And there is no one to interpret it. Well, then Joseph said to them, Well, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. This is a pretty powerful statement. He tells them that interpretation, it really belongs to God, the one true God. He aligns himself with God, and he says, Only God could give you the interpretations. But then he says, tell it to me, please, because he is one who is standing as a representative of God. In fact, he himself had had dreams. It's interesting. Dreams had gotten him into a lot of trouble. You'd think coats and dreams were two things that Joseph would want to stay away from, right? They always got him in trouble, right? But he says, no. Why don't you tell it to me? And he said, OK, well, a chief kept bearer. He goes first, verse nine. So he he told his dream to Joseph and he said to him. Well, in my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me and on the vine were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out and its clusters produced ripe ripe grapes. And now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. And so I I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and I I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And then I woke up. That's my dream. And I, I simply don't understand what does it mean. And then Joseph, verse 12, said to him, I'm going to tell you, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. And within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. That is a phrase that speaks of like having your case now considered by the king. And so he says, Pharaoh is going to lift up your head in three days. And he says, and he is going to restore you to your office. And you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. That's what this dream means. Three days, you're going to be restored to your position as the cupbearer who put the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And he says, verse 14, only keep in mind, keep me in mind when it goes well with you. And please do me a chesed, loyal love, a loving kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house, for I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that should have put me into the dungeon. Remember me, remember me, when this happens three days from now. Well, you imagine that the uh, cupbearers kind of thinking like, whoa, that's that's, some, that's that's a pretty good interpretation. Let's see what happens here. Well, the baker, you know, remember, he had his dream, too. And and both of them have been pretty dejected. But, I mean, if I was the baker, I'm thinking, whew, interpretations are sounding pretty good these days.
1: Hey, uh, by the way, I had a
0: dream, too. Let me tell you all about it, because he's thinking, man, this is good. I want to find out what good things are going to happen to me. Well, he says, uh, well, tell me your dream. Verse 16. So when the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, you know what? I also saw in my dream and behold, there were 3 baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket there were all there were some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. What in the world could this mean? This is such a crazy dream. What what could that mean? Now, here's something about Joseph. Joseph isn't in uh, about just trying to make friends and win uh, folks to his side. Joseph is a truth bearer. He speaks truth. He is God's man. And Joseph is going to answer and tell the true interpretation of this dream. And so he does. Verse 18. Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. The bigger's going, oh, this is sounding so good. Keep going. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your Lift lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree and the birds will eat your flesh off you. I'm sure he's just like, what? And there's, there's really kind of a play on words. You know, the idea of lifting up your head means your case is going to rise before the king. But literally, it says in the Hebrew that he's going to lift up your head from you. Your head's going to be removed from you. Now, they didn't uh, hang people in, as a way of execution in Egypt. But they, what they would do is they would behead them. And then as, a, as just a further and in, additional indignity, They would, like, impale this body and put it on a stake and vultures and birds and insects and stuff they could just have at it, at this body, as as just an additional sign of indignity. And the baker's going, I hate this dream and your interpretation of it. I don't like it at all. And I hope you're wrong. Well, of course, we're going to have three days to find out, aren't we? Day one. Day two. Day three. It's festival time in Egypt. Everybody's on their best behavior. It's a very special day. It's Pharaoh's birthday, and he is the birthday boy, and he's pretty excited about that. And look at verse 20. We get a scene at the birthday party. Thus, it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. Okay, I want you to get the picture here. All of his servants, probably thousands of them. He's got a feast, and he's got them all gathered and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He brings them to him because he is going to exercise judgment, whether to declare their innocence or to declare that they are going to face the penalty. And verse 21, he restored the chief cupbearer to his office and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Can you imagine what that was? You have the dream, Joseph interprets it, he gives you the cup, so that you can give it to Pharaoh. Whoa, he's been, he has been released, he has been redeemed, and he now has this most favored position. And yet, there's another one, but verse 22, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. That baker, Pharaoh is going to make a statement throughout the entire empire. You will not ever be found to be untrustworthy or forsake me. And if you do, this is what happens. And so he had his head cut off and he likely had him impaled. And just like Joseph interpreted, just like the dream that God had given, so it happened. Well, you would think that that Joseph was like, you know, he's, he's in prison, but he knows this is going to happen. And one day he sees three days later that those two boys are gone. And he's thinking, finally. It's going to happen. I am going to get out. I have got a guy who has got the ear of Pharaoh. He is going to get me out of there. I am going to be released. It's just a matter of time. And you can imagine he could be thinking about those dreams again. He's thinking, whoa, I'm going to finally get out of here. I'll be released. I will be found to be innocent. And he's waiting and waiting and waiting. And notice verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph But forgot him. It's hard to even read those words because I would imagine that the hope that he had that he'd be released and to come to the realization that it is not going to happen must have been very heavy news. And yet, we never find him growing despondent. There is no record of him just saying, God, I give up. I don't care, I'm not going to serve, I'm not going to do anything, I am just going to wait until I die. In fact, we find in 41, at the very beginning, that he remains in this condition for now two full years, two more years of waiting and realizing that he had been forgotten. And you know, he had a choice, and that's the choice, by the way, that we all have when we face this difficulty, when we've been forsaken, when we put our hope on something and it didn't happen. We can do one, we can become disillusioned and embittered. And there's many people that go this route. They're like, God, you didn't work it out the way I wanted. I had it figured out this way, and I prison and being abandoned and forsaken and being maligned. I was not part of it. And and so what happens? And this happens to a lot of people they become embittered, they're disillusioned, and it's simply like they just try to walk away from God. And they just, something contorts their soul and their life and their heart. And they become bitter, sour, empty, hollow individuals. On the other hand, you can use that difficulty as a platform for putting your hope and trust in the living God. And apparently, that is what Joseph does. When we're going through these difficulties, you may be going through one right now. The key is this, to remember and renew yourself to the reality that the Lord is with you and he is everything that you need. He's with you. There's a man by the name of Christian Reger. He is a man who who learned this lesson, this, this very important lesson of life, that the Lord is with you. In fact, he learned it in a very difficult place for four years He was a prisoner in the infamous Dachau uh, prison camp in Nazi Germany. His crime? His crime was this. He was a member of the Confessing Church, one of the German state churches that took a stand against the Nazis. This is, by the way, the same church that uh, Martin Niemöller and Dietrich Bonhoeffer were a part of. His crime was this. He was turned over to the Nazis by the church organists. Can you imagine that? What kind of disharmony you'd have in a body if the church organist is playing, and then the next day she's, she turns you in to the Nazis. He's hauled, hauled hundred miles, hundreds of miles south, close over there to by Munich. He's in Dachau, a very terrible place. And Philip Yancey writes about this man's experience in the book, Where is God When Life Hurts? Christian Reger will tell you the horror stories if you ask. But he will never stop there. He goes on to share his faith about how at Dachau he was visited by God who loves. And he writes, Nietzsche said a man can undergo torture if he knows the why of his life, Reger told me. But I, here at Dachau, learned something far greater. I learned to know the who of my life. He was enough to sustain me then and is enough to sustain me still. And that's what we learn in the difficulties of life. That God is enough. He is more than enough for all that I need. And there's some there's some blessings that come from difficulties. Now we don't go out and hunt out difficulties, but we need to know and have a theology of suffering and to see Some of the blessings or the benefits that come from these difficulties. Let me give you some. One, difficulties show us our great need for genuine relationship with God. Part of my testimony, imagine part of your testimonies for a lot of you, is that you came to a period of brokenness, broken health, broken relationships, uh, loss of job. Life started unraveling and coming apart. And it is at this point that it's through the brokenness you started to see your sinfulness and your need for God and his provision of Jesus Christ, the righteous one who who died in our place so that we might always have his presence and know him. You know, it says in Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. He's near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. It is through brokenness that God brings us to himself. There are no proud sinners, a part of God's family. Only broken sinners who come and say, Lord, you know me and my wretchedness. And I trust you and your righteousness. And I receive your son as my savior. Let me give you another blessing that comes from difficulty. Brokenness is God's means, means to Fruitfulness. We generally think of the other way around. But think of some of the great things God has done through some very broken people and some very difficult places. For instance, uh, most of you have spent some time reading the New Testament. Did you know a good chunk of the New Testament was written in prison by Paul? They are called the prison epistles. They're called the prison epistles because he is in prison. And yet God does this amazing work or men. This man moved by the Holy Spirit. He spoke from God. Or to the Apostle John, at the end of his life, the man is a very old man. He is sent into exile on an island of Patmos. And it's on this island that Christ himself gives him the revelation of all that is to come and gives him a scene and a picture of the grandeur, the greatness, and the deity of God the Father, God the Son, and his spirit working in the world. And it happened while he was a, in prison and exile. Or, Paul, or John Bunyan, there's this great allegory that he wrote called Pilgrim's Progress. But do you know where he wrote that? He wrote it in prison. You see, brokenness is God's means to fruitfulness. Perhaps some of your last, most lasting work, your, your best fruit, is going to come through the difficult soil that you may be in even presently. Let me give you another blessing that comes through uh, these difficulties of life. Our difficult days can be times of significant growth. Our difficult days can be times of significant growth. You see, the problems that Joseph faced, they became the, the avenues by which God built the man. You don't know now, but in years to come, the lessons that he learns, both as a slave and as a prisoner, they become vital. In his in in the future of his life, he learns lessons. He has experiences that are going to benefit him greatly, and yet they are learned in this very difficult time of mistreatment. You know what happens is this: we learn to have to walk by faith, and faith does this. Faith deliberately puts uh, his or her confidence in God, even when we don't see how it's going to work out, or we don't understand His timing. That's what faith is, and that's what he is doing. He is like in God's graduate school. Painful though it is, he is learning the power of perseverance. He is learning courage. He is learning just what God can do in very difficult times. And this, by the way, is the exact opposite of the message that is so popular on TV and a lot of radio programs with their health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. God just really wants you happy, right? And there's no place for sickness. If you just believe enough, you're going to be healed. You know that little that racket. And they make a lot of money doing that. That sounds good. Everybody goes, oh, okay, I want it. And they ask, well, how come I'm not healed? Well, you don't have enough faith. You know what that is, don't you? That's spiritual abuse. That's what that is. Uh-uh. That's not how God works. And that is a misrepresentation of God. God works even through our difficulties, through our trials. We can trust him. God brings depth to your ministry by having us go through hardship. There's a great couple of verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who does this, who comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see, when we go through brokenness and difficulties and hardship, we all of a sudden become sympathetic to those who are hurting. We care about them. Whether we've gone through grief, we've experienced hardship, we've been abandoned, we've experienced difficult times, we've been maligned, we go through it, you know what? It puts you as a candidate that can come alongside and care for others. It's through the difficulties and ex We experience the comfort that is found in Christ. We can be able to minister effectively to others. To the hurting, We want them well. And to those who are healthy, we want them to see them even stronger in Christ. Where do we learn these lessons? We learn them in the difficulties. And let me give you one other blessing that comes. Problems produce dependency upon God. Problems produce dependency upon God. We we find that when all earthly support is stripped away, that God in Christ is more than enough. He is everything that we need. That, by the way, was the experience of the Apostle Paul, his, some of his final words, Second Timothy chapter four, he writes this: "At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them, but he says, "But the Lord stood with me, and He strengthened me. He said, I, everything. He stood with me and He strengthened me. And these are the lessons that we are to learn. It is simply this. If I could just reduce it down to one statement. It is in the difficulties of our life that we learn the power of his presence. It is in the difficulties of our life that we learn the power of his presence. Some of you may know this man, but if not, I'd like to introduce to you Captain Howard Rutledge. He uh, became a POW and the quote unquote conflict with Vietnam, On November 27, 1965, early in the war, this Navy pilot was shot down over North Vietnam and he parachuted into the hands of his captors. And he lived seven years of an excruciating misery as a prisoner of war in Hanoi. He writes about these difficult experiences that he went through from 65 all the way to 1973, in which he was released. And he writes about this in this book called In the Presence of Mine Enemies. And I'd like to just read just a a quote here. He says, During those longer periods of enforced reflection, it became much easier to separate the important from the trivial, the worthwhile from the waste. For example, in the past, I had usually worked or played hard on Sundays and had no time for church. For years, my wife had encouraged me to join the family in church. She never nagged or scolded. She just kept hoping. But I was too busy, too preoccupied, occupied to spend one or two hours a week thinking about the really important things. Now the sights and sounds of death were all around me. My hunger for spiritual food soon outdid my hunger for steak. Now I wanted to know about the part of me that will never die. Now I wanted to talk about God and Christ and the church. But in solitary confinement? There was no pastor, no Sunday school teacher, no hymn book, no community of believers to guide or sustain me. I had completely neglected the spiritual dimension of my life and it took prison to show me how empty life is without God. Have you come to that point to realize how empty life is without God? You see, when we come to the brokenness of our life and we see that we don't have the answers... We don't have hope. We are sinful. It is when we see our sin and that its consequences is death, spiritual death, and separation from God that we see the beauty of the Savior. And we trust Him. And we see that He is everything that we are not. He is holy. He is loving. He is righteous. And we trust Him. And when we do, we begin to experience the power of His presence. Well, Rutledge goes on in his book to talk about some of the changes that took place in his life. He he said, I learned about the power of prayer. He said, I I learned that you could talk to God dangling from a parachute or you could learn to talk to God when you're shackled in a cesspool. He said he learned the importance of worship, whether in a crowd of men or when you're alone in solitary confinement, which he spent much of his time. He said, I learned the importance of church in prison. He made a promise to God that... um, that when God got him out of this prison camp, the first Sunday he was back, he was going to take his family to that church. And after, at, toward the end of that service, he was going to walk up to the very front of that church and he was going to stand before that entire body and he was going to confess his faith in Jesus Christ and he was going to take his place as a responsible member of that body from there on out. That was a promise that he made. He also said that it was in prison that he learned the importance of the Bible. On that first New Year's Eve, he made a resolution that he would never again be found without a Bible. He made that resolution at Heartbreak Hotel. He, what he did is he tried to remember the few verses that he had somehow learned as a kid, but then he would go to other prisoners and ask them for anything they could remember about the Bible. And he said, I will never again be found without the Bible. The other thing he said is, It was in prison that I learned that I am going to be a spiritual leader. And so, friends, it's in the difficulties of life that we learn the power of his presence. You know, we want it all gain, no pain. But it cannot be that way. I tell you, I'm I'm not running around looking for problems or difficulties. But I can tell you this, the ones that I have gone through. They have shaped me. Sometimes I felt like a cateeter. I could go and just end up in bitterness and disillusionment, but to go once again to experience his mercies new every morning. It's kind of like a chisel to a marble masterpiece or like sandpaper to a wood carving. It hurts it's unpleasant. But it is necessary if I want to be deep in my relationship with Christ. It's in difficulties of our life, that we learn the power of his presence. And what should we do? Like it says in Hebrews 4, 16, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What we need to do is go to the Lord, go to God. And that is why God has given us Christ. The New Testament begins with the coming of Emmanuel, You know what that name means? It means God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And that gospel closes with Jesus making this statement as he is ascending into heaven. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you and I am more than enough. I am all that you need. And his presence, he gives us strength. He gives us comfort. Peace, wisdom, courage, insight, confidence, joy, perseverance, awareness, and a deep sense of his presence and perspective. His presence is all that we need. And do you know where we learn the power of his presence? We learn it in the difficulties of life. Men, like in verse 23, they may forget you and even forsake you. But you are not forgotten by God. He loves you and he has promised. I will never leave you. And we, when we turn to him, trust him. We experience the power of his presence. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this amazing chapter. Genesis 40. We could perhaps skim through it and see, huh? Nothing good here. On the other hand, when we see it with the eyes of faith, looking at the scriptures through the lens of Christ and taking it in context, we see you were with Joseph even in his hardest times, making him and shaping him, breaking him and molding him. And you are with us today. And so, Lord, would you have your way in us? Though we are being crushed, would you remold us and fashion us? Would you make us more like your Son, our Savior, and fill our life with His presence. And for someone who has come today, who has never trusted you, but has experienced hardship and brokenness, would they just pray with me right now and say, Lord, You know about me and my sinfulness. And You have brought me, this point, to this day. Where today I turn from my sin and my selfishness. And I trust Jesus alone as my Savior and as my Lord. And I thank you for the eternal life and the hope that I truly have in him. And for all of us, Lord, may we this week especially experience you are more than enough. You are everything we need. For Lord, in the difficulties in our life, we are learning the power of your presence. For your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen.